Lasso. This morning we'll begin the first phase of the practice of awareness of awareness. The primary text that I'll be drawing from uh, is Natural Liberation, a Dharma, a treasure text attributed to Padmasambhava. And he calls it shamatha without a sign, which very simply means shamatha without an object. That is, when in this practice, one is not attending to any appearance or object to the mind, but simply being aware of the experience of being aware all by itself. So in the last three days, we've been attending to really the mind. We can really call that observing the mind. And the shamatha project, the scientists wanted a good, clear label that would may mean something to other scientists, so we didn't use the word settling the mind in this natural state. Scientists don't know what that means, so they simply called it observing the mind. It's a good, good, it's a good uh, a label for it. And quite clearly, as you're observing thoughts and images, memories and so forth, why not call that observing the mind? That's what the mind is, consists of, these many mental processes. But one may have a lot of insight into the emergence of thoughts, of images, of emotions, and so forth, and yet not have any really clear insight into consciousness itself. Likewise, psychologists uh, do know a lot about attention, perception, working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, emotions, and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily imply that one has any real deep insight into the very raw primitive, fundamental experience of consciousness itself. So how is one to go about if one is really keenly interested in consciousness? How should one proceed? Well, William James, over a century ago, suggested that the primary mode of inquiry into the mind and all states of consciousness was introspection, the good old-fashioned way of the natural sciences, and that is directly observe the phenomena you're trying to understand. If it's the mind, well, observe the one mind that you have any direct experiential access to, your own, and that means you're into introspection. But just about exactly 100 years ago, he died, and they buried him in every possible sense of the term. And academic psychology, especially in, in England and the United States, was then really dominated for about 50, 60 years by behaviorism. Behaviorism did just the opposite. Instead of looking inward, it looked absolutely outwards. And looking outwards to the body, behavior, and so forth, lo and behold, something was not evident. Consciousness. In fact, mind altogether. So some of the more radical behaviorists said, well, mind doesn't exist. I mean, I have a quote. Thoughts, images, memories, and so forth do not exist. Consciousness doesn't exist. It's a superstition. And these people, I mean, the, the real breaking news here is they were not insane. They actually were intelligent people. But then religious fundamentalists are often right, quite bright. They're not, you know, they're not all low IQ people. But they will take, whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's the Dhammapada, the Bible, the Quran, or what have you, fundamentalism tends to lock into what we call methodolatry. And that is, our method is the only way. And that is, if I'm, let's say, oh, let's, let's not pick on anybody else. Let's say I'm a Buddhist fundamentalist and... Everything that needs to be known and everything that, is, everything that is true is all to be found in the Pali Canon. Okay? Now, of course, I don't believe that, but if I are a really hardcore Theravada fundamentalist, I say, look, everything that we need to know about reality is in the Pali Canon. Uh, there's no brain theory. There's no references to the, any sophisticated... Well, that means you don't need to know it. Uh, there's no reference to neurons. They don't exist. 
Why? Well, there's just no evidence. We've studied the Pali Canon very carefully. There are no references to neurons, therefore neurons don't exist. Makes sense to me, you know, if you decide that studying the Pali Canon is the only way to access reality. Well, that's exactly what the behaviorists did. They have a methodology. They have the only way to study reality is looking at objective, physical, quantifiable phenomena. We don't see thoughts, therefore they don't exist. All that we know exists are behavioral dispositions and behavior. And so actually B.F. Skinner at one point said, uh, thoughts are actually just a subtle form of verbal behavior. <laughs> it's for the same reason, really, that modern science as a whole, biology in particular, has simply scuttled the whole notion of prana. A lot of you experience prana. Some of you have experienced chakras. It's just like you've experienced red or sweet or sour. But you can't measure it biolo biologically. You can, there's just no device thus far that measures prana. So it's central to chi traditional Chinese medicine, Indian Ayurvedic medicine, Tibetan medicine, Hopi, and so forth. But the biologists, when they're fundamentalists, they say, we can't measure it, it doesn't exist. But then when people, s they can either discard it, or they can say, oh, but of course consciousness, can, let's get real here, consciousness does exist. Good, how do you define it? And if you're a biologist, you're taking something you don't know, that is, the nature of consciousness, and what you do, it's a very nice slate of hand trick, it's kind of a trick, and that you take something you don't know and you simply define it in terms of something you do know. It's a very, very easy way out. And so what is consciousness? It's a certain bandwidth of electromagnetic uh, you know, fields generated by the brain. Those we know. Consciousness don't, but don't worry. Consciousness is nothing more than a certain bandwidth of electromagnetic fields. That one was seriously proposed until it was defeated. But it keeps on trying to get reborn. Another one I read just recently is consciousness is nothing more than integrated information. That's by a biologist. No, it's nothing more. So your laptop, ah, in fact, my iPod. Hello, iPod, how are you doing today? Because I know you have a lot of integrated information in there. I feel you. Do you feel me? Ah, he does. <laughs> Hi. Just take something you don't understand and, trans and define it as something you do understand. Integrated information. Ha. Consciousness in the Buddhist understanding is one of the most fundamental and perhaps the most fundamental element of experience there is. And if you don't have it, there are no words that can ever be used, not even as big as the Encyclopedia Britannica or all of the information on the internet, there is no amount of words that will be sufficient to convey to you what consciousness is if you don't have it. Number one, you won't hear any of the words, so that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so if you don't have consciousness, you're out of luck. There's just, you won't get it. Hello, clock? You want to know what consciousness is? You know, it won't get it. It will never get it. It's just click, 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 click. You know, there we are. Likewise, if you're colorblind, if you're colorblind, now she is wearing green. That is chartreuse. I think one of them is kind of chartreuse. -ish. In any case, Chris is wearing green today. She's trying to please me. Thank you. <laughs> if you're colorblind, and somebody, and, and you ask, tell me, I just don't get it. What's the difference between green and red? 
I just don't get it. Well, the physicists that come and said, oh, I can handle the problem, no problem. Green is this bandwidth of electromagnetic fields. They have this frequency, and red has this frequency. They're entirely different. And so that's the difference between green and red. And then you, yeah, but I don't see electromagnetic fields. No, why don't we can, we can measure them. You see this one? This is this bandwidth, this is bandwidth. Okay, now I understand, but I still don't get green and red. No, but that, those frequencies, electromagnetic fields of those frequencies, they are green and they are red. If you understand this, you've understood them. Okay, got it, now I understand. Except you're still colorblind. A biologist would say, no, 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 that's, that's wrong, that's wrong. That's not green and red. What green red is really, green is actually occurring inside the visual cortex. It's not out there. Images, as Antonio Damasio, the neurologist said, images don't travel through space. Right. They're generated in the brain. So green is actually inside the visual cortex, and we can tell you exactly what green is. This particular type of activity of neurons in the visual cortex, this is green, and this is red, and they're entirely different. And if we damage this part of the brain, you won't see green anymore. And, we, and you damage this part, and you won't green, see red anymore. All very good, okay. But now I know about neurons, but I still don't know what green or red is. You just told me about neurons. So, in my impression, most of the definitions of consciousness that are given by philosophers, physicists, and biologists, and psychologists, are all as if they're giving it to people who aren't conscious. as if they'll just get enough concepts that that will do it. It's a certain type of neuronal activity, it's a frequency, it's a behavioral disposition, it doesn't exist, whatever. But it's really as if they're t talking about consciousness to people who aren't conscious. And they can only get it conceptually. But if you're not conscious, then you won't get it anyway. So there are all those intellectual definitions that lead just more thoughts and more thoughts and all of them miss the target. And the Buddhist approach is entirely different. And frankly, it's much closer to Galileo. If you said, you know, I would really, I, I'd like to know the nature of Mars. Mars, the planet, not the candy bar. You know, Mars. <laughs> the, the older Mars. And you could talk about all kinds, you could talk about, oh, Mars, sure, I can tell you about Mars. Mars is a, pl is a planet, and it's got this type of epicycle, and that type of eccentric, and it does these epic. Ep and you can learn all about the epicycles and, and eccentrics of Mars, but that will not give you one inch of how to actually recognize Mars when you see it. Because when you look at Mars, you don't see epicycles and you don't see eccentrics. You just get caught up in one more abstraction. Galileo's approach was, oh, you want to meet Mars? Look, it actually moves across the night sky unlike the, in, in a different way than the, than the stars, but most importantly, look at it. In the t tomorrow, I know when it's going to come up, it's going to be in this part of the night sky, it's going to be red, and moreover, if you focus your telescope on it, you'll see this and this and this. So, but look in this part of the night sky, tomorrow. It, and then, with that definition, Mars is a planet, it's red, and it's in this part of the night sky at such and such a time, then you'll actually see Mars. Right? That's actually a way to recognize Mars, and then to explore Mars not talking about epicycles and, and eccentrics. Now, I'll do one last experiment, then we'll get back to the, to the practice. Um, I doubt that any of you really know what an um is. An um, A-M. Um. 
So I'd like to define it for you. I won't talk about epicycles or brain neuronal activity and so forth, but an um. An um is a type of fruit. So what just happened in your mind right now is everything that's not fruit just got knocked out. Vegetables, doorknobs, planets, dirt, and so forth. Everything not fruit just got knocked. It's a type of fruit. Um, it's got the color of kind of yellowish, a bit orangish. Its texture is quite soft. It's quite sweet. It's got a rather leathery skin that you want to take off. When you see it, when it just right off, it grows on a tree. And when you see it right off the tree, it's got, it looks like about the shape of a very small watermelon. That is, it's small. It's kind of elliptical. And you peel off the fruit. And in fact, I think you'll find them there pretty much every morning, diced up. That is, cut into wedges and chunks. And they're very sweet. They're good on cereal. They're good all by themselves. They're good in mango, uh, milkshakes. <laughs> Whoops. But even if I had not said mango, I think you'd pretty well nailed it by then, hadn't you? And that is, when you walked in there and you looked at the, the meat and the, and the grains and the vegetables and so forth, then you go, not, 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 not. And then you put it in your mouth. It's sweet. It's gushy. And I've seen where these grow, and then you would, the words would have helped you identify um, which is the Tibetan word for mango. So a definition that's worth its salt, that's really worth something, helps you identify experientially, if at all possible, what the referent of the word is. And the referent of the word consciousness is something that all of us here can ascertain because we are conscious. And the definition is that which is luminous and cognizant. Let's go, see, let's go see if we can find it. Let your awareness descend into the body, into this field of tactile experience, right down to the ground. And let your awareness fill the whole space of the body like a fragrance filling a room. As you set your body at ease, in stillness, in a posture of vigilance, then you may round off this initial settling of the body by taking three slow, deep breaths, mindfully attentive to the sensations of the breath throughout the body as you do so.
settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Get out of the way and let your body breathe without restraint, without effort, as effortlessly as if you were deep asleep. Keep your, keep your abdominal muscles loose and relaxed so the sensations of the breath come right down to the belly with each inhalation. Set your mind at ease, releasing all cares, hopes, and fears about the future and the past. Let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. And for a little while, clearly illuminate the sensations of the breath, whether in a diffuse fashion, attending to the sensations throughout the body, or with the rise and fall of the abdomen or the passage of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils. For a little while, attend to the sensations of the breath. Let your eyes be at least partially open, but without attending to any visual object, any shape or color. Let your gaze rest vacantly in the space in front of you, as if you were absent-minded or daydreaming.
but rather than being absent-minded or daydreaming, now direct the full force of your attention to the domain of mental experience, withdrawing your attention from all of the five physical senses. Of course, sense impressions will continue to arise. Simply don't deliberately pay any attention to them. Exercise what is called executive control. Take charge of your attention and focus it on the domain of mental experience, the space of the mind, and whatever arises within it. You may catalyze this if you wish by deliberately generating a thought or image, focusing on it, allowing it to pass, and sustaining your attention right where it was. Attend for a little while. Focus on the foreground, the players on the stage, the thoughts and images that distinctly arise in the space of the mind. Observe their nature without distraction, without grasping. shift to the background, just like refocusing a lens. From the foreground to the background, now attend principally to the intervals between thoughts and images, to the space from which mental events emerge, 
in which they are present and into which they dissolve. Focus single-pointedly on the space of the mind. Attend closely. Does this space have a location? Is it in front of you? Inside the head? Behind you? Does it have a center? Does it have a periphery? as you attend single-pointedly to the space of the mind, withdraw your interest, withdraw your attention, away even from this appearance of vacuity. Withdraw your awareness right into its own nature. Appearances of all kinds continue to arise, but take no interest in any appearances to the mind or to awareness. But let your awareness come home and rest in its own place and rest in the sheer raw knowing of knowing. Attend to what would be left if all appearances vanished, all thoughts vanished, even the space of the mind vanished, but you are still aware What would be left of just awareness, illuminating and knowing itself?
I invite you now to initiate a type of oscillation, like a membrane expanding and contracting. Withdraw your awareness, drawing it away from all appearances, sensory and mental, right into itself, right into the nucleus of awareness itself. Concentrate, focus, and then utterly release. Release your awareness into space. Not only the space in front of you, but space in all directions. Just utterly let go. Release your awareness into space, taking nothing as an object, just releasing. to a sheer absence of any object, just releasing into space. Total relaxation. And then once again arouse, contract, focus, invert your awareness right in upon itself. Vividly, being aware of being aware. And then utterly relax, releasing your awareness into space with no object. But even as you release, Gently sustain the thread, the flow of being aware of being aware. Invert and release. If you're new at this practice, you might find it helpful as a preparatory exercise to correlate this inversion and release with the breath. As you breathe in, invert your awareness in upon itself and focus clearly. As you breathe out, release your attention into space while gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. You'll go deeper and deeper in this practice insofar as you are relaxed. So let your body be utterly at ease, 
the breath utterly effortless. Experiment for yourself to see whether it's more helpful in this regard to breathe through your nostrils or to breathe through the mouth. release the oscillation, let your awareness simply come to rest in the center, neither out nor in, neither released nor inverted, 
your awareness come to rest in its own place, illuminating and knowing itself. About 45 years ago, the very brilliant theoretical physicist Richard Feynman made the comment in his Feynman lecture series that everything that occurs in the universe, including all of human experience, can all be understood in terms of the movements of atoms in space. It all boils down to atoms in space. In other words, if you can't measure it by measuring atoms in space, it doesn't exist. It's a form of ideological dogmatism or fundamentalism as well as methodology. Are methods or no methods? Just, oh, 10, 15 years ago, the very renowned, very, very bright neurologist Antonio Damasio said, the sole aim of, of us neuroscientists is to thoroughly understand the mind biologically using our methods. One more form of methodology. It's nothing different than I can see than religious fundamentalism. Our ideas and our methods, everything else doesn't count, and if we can't see it, it doesn't exist. A Buddhist may do the same thing. You want to understand the mind? Study Abhidhamma. Just study the Abhidhamma. Everything you need to know about the mind is in the Abhidhamma. Study it debate it, and then you really know about the mind. It's one more form of methodology and ideological dogmatism. So the spirit of science rose to counteract that. Unfortunately, multiple branches of science are now in, in, infected with a virus that science was devised to overcome. That's my opinion. But Galileo is the great scientist, the first great scientist, and he was an empiricist. You want to understand something, whether it's balls rolling down a ramp, dropping big and little things off the Tower of Pisa. You want to understand the planets, the sun and the moon, and so forth. Look carefully. Observe as carefully, as meticulously, with as much sophistication as you can, and let that be the cutting edge of whatever claims you make about the phenomenon in question. That's exactly the spirit of Buddhism. Buddhism falls into dogmatism like every other system. But that is the spirit of the Buddha's own teachings and the spirit of Buddhism at the best. It is radical, radical empiricism. 
If you want to understand the mind, observe it carefully. If you want to understand consciousness, observe it carefully. Let the experience lead you and let the theory come afterwards. This was Padmasambhava's point. I loved it in Natural Liberation. He said there are two approaches right towards the beginning of the text. It's right towards the beginning of Shamat, actually. He said there are two approaches. This is within Buddhism. One is theory first. So first become a kempo. Spend 10, 15 years really learn, learning Buddhist doctrine. And then do the meditation. You're now well conditioned to meditate properly. Well configured. One could say well indoctrinated. Or first spend your 10, 20, uh, 25, 15, 20, 25 years being a pamageshe. Learn everything about the five treatises, the sutrayana, and learn everything and then you know, if you're not keeling over from senility already, then, you know, then start meditating. Because now you'll really know Dharma, now you're ready to meditate. If you don't get to it, well, gosh, what, what can one say? And so there's one approach, the theory first and the experience second, the meditation second. And Padmasambhava said, my approach is the opposite. Let the experience guide and let the theory come and try to make sense of what you've experienced through your direct inquiry. Theory second. Just enough theory to launch you, just enough theory to polish your telescope and to learn how to ob observe carefully and let your theory come afterwards. And that's what Galileo did. Ah, so good. So, finished. Before we all disband, though, I'd like to introduce a very dear friend who will come whenever he can. And this is Sean Panton. And rather than my uh, introducing you, man, uh, Sean, maybe you can just introduce yourself for about a minute or so. Just couldn't quite do the last part. Yeah, you're very welcome to be here. I have the microphone, so Sean has been integral to the development of, of PIA, and very especially the Sports and Leisure Club. Um, he's an old friend of Klaus Heben, our invisible benefactor. Klaus Heben is in fact not God. You know, he's, he's a human being, you know, he might seem like God because he created everything, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, Klaus is also a very dear friend, and he did indeed create this. And I'm hoping Klaus can one day come, but he's just so devoting himself to helping fully develop the whole of PIA. He would really like nothing other than to be part, fully part of this retreat. He's told me that night, night, it's literally true, but it's just meeting after meeting as he continues just to devote himself, heart and soul, to seeing that this whole PIA, all aspects of it, the school, the sports and leisure club, the mind center, continue to flower and come to fruition. And that's why we're not here. So it's frankly utter self-sacrifice on, on Klaus's part. Uh, Sean and Klaus have been friends for years. Uh, Klaus is a very dear friend. Uh, uh, Klaus is certainly, Sean as well. So welcome, Sean. Whenever you can come, you're welcome to be here. And that's it for this morning. So be happy that you're conscious because you actually have a really good shot at realizing what consciousness is since you are conscious. If you weren't, then I wouldn't have anything more to say. See you later. <laughs>